Are your customers the kind who politely come and go and sometimes leave you little hearts on social media? Or are they actually obsessed with what you do? The difference between an incredible brand and all the others is how they create fans. Welcome to the Brand to Fan Show, where we unpack the phenomenon of fandom and how to cultivate affinity, loyalty, and trust to build more fans so you can future-proof your business. Here's your host, Lauren Teague. On this journey of brand to fan, we also need to pay attention to the founders of the businesses that we are fans of and the people who work behind the scenes to cultivate these brands that we collectively adore and advocate for. So when I was thinking about that and in truthfully being an entrepreneurial founder over the last year or so and putting my own self into that role, I, there's a series of books and authors and experts and, and people I rely on, uh, on Instagram and on Clubhouse and, and anywhere I can capture them, who remind me that the path is one, not linear, and two, is not necessarily going to get easier or better. And the person who probably screams that in my ear the most, not literally, but figuratively, is none other than Laura Gassner Odding, who I've invited to join us on the Brand of Fan Show uh, because truthfully, I'm at a point in my own founder journey and even with this podcast where I need both a kick in the ass and a warm hug. And she is literally does that. Uh, that is one of the things that you say um, to your friends and to your audiences, Laura. So I'm just very glad to have you on the Brand of Fan Show as we are celebrating a big milestone for you and also kind of maybe pulling me out of this like that I'm in uh, right now. So welcome to the Brand Fan Show. Really, oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, Lori. Um, actually, it was our mutual friend, Judson Lapley, who uh, once called me a kick in the ass wrapped in a warm hug. And I was like, oh my God, that's what I am. <laughs> so it has become part of my stage intro right now. And it always gets a good laugh from audiences. Now, Laura, you are a speaker, an author, you know, I, a coach, a consultant. So tell us a little bit about kind of what your journey has been to this point and, you know, like the, the elevator spiel, if you will. Yeah. I mean, what I tell people is that I've spent the, my entire career basically thinking about this question of why success doesn't equal happiness. And it started for me when I dropped out of law school and joined the presidential campaign because I was like, I don't want to be a lawyer. Like I've been told my entire life, I should be a lawyer. And I thought, okay, I'll be a lawyer. And then I got to law school and I was like, I don't know what to do this. This is terrible. I don't belong here. Uh, so I ended up uh, joining a presidential campaign, ending up uh, in the White House and then leaving that White House uh, partway through an administration, which like nobody does, to go become a headhunter. I was really interested in sort of finding the right people to solve bigger problems. And then I worked at you know, the the marquee firm in my industry that did that work. And then I had this moment of rage where I was like, ah, this could be done better and different and with more authenticity and more and more profit for me and less cost for my client and more integrity all around. And I marched into my boss's office and I was like, there is a better way. And he was like, there is the door. So, you know, I became an entrepreneur in that moment because you know, Lauren, that as soon as you realize that you're not part of the solution, it leaves you in only one place, which is that you're part of the problem. And so for me, that was untenable. I couldn't stay in that place and I had to change something. So I started my own firm, ran it for 15 years, 
uh, and then sold it to my team when I was like at the point of my career where I could have just like mailed it in for the rest of my career. So at every moment in my career, I had this, I'm successful, but it's not enough. There's more here. Not that I needed like, I need to be bigger, better, faster, more. I just, I sort of solved the puzzle and I wanted to do the next thing and I wanted to do the next thing. And so I just became fascinated about that question. And then the last book I wrote, Limitless, really talks about the, the, the people that I tried to recruit, the thousands of leaders that I worked with over the course of a 20-year career in recruiting and what actually gave them both success and happiness. When that book came out and it was successful beyond my expectations, having no idea what on earth I was doing, I found myself in this moment where I was like, well, that's pretty cool. It's a Washington Post bestseller. Amazing, exciting, humbling, wonderful. But how do you get to be a New York Times bestseller? And suddenly I felt this burden of potential, like, what if I could do that? And while it was wonderful, it was also anxiety provoking and stressful and intimidating and identity shaking. It was hell. It was wonder hell. So my next book that we're going to talk about today is about this moment of wonder hell. When you've got one foot in yesterday and one foot in tomorrow, you sort of know who you were, but you also have a sense of who you might possibly maybe one day become. And once you see that new you, you can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. And now you're stuck having to make a decision about what you're going to do with it. Yeah. You and I both know a little bit about that, like getting our dream job right out of the gate. You dropped out of law school, joined a campaign. I found myself inside the ropes at the PGA Tour. So by the time we were both 23, I was social meeting with the PGA Tour and the professional golfers. You are literally having meetings in the Oval Office. Yes. So I can totally see this path. I can, I can empathize with you, this build up to both Limitless because I had that feeling probably like you that like I have a, I had my dream job. I had it so early. Like now what am I supposed to dream? What do I reach for next? But like you said, that also gets to that path of wonder how so clearly because when you get your dream, it becomes your reality. And for me, I don't know about for you, but for me, it really sucked for a long time. Was like I got my dream job and it's not what I thought it would be. And also, can I like, can I make it out of here alive? And then what am I supposed to do next? And so that was I I felt it. Um, and I was young feeling that. And I've been lucky enough to reimagine, you know, what that looks like, kind of like you with your executive coaching, but like what has your journey taught you about balancing that reality and that that yesterday and tomorrow? Well, you know, it's interesting because if you would have asked me when I was 12, you're going to like, you're going to be working in the White House. Where are you going to go from there? I would have been like, where am I going to go from there? There's nowhere to go from there. I saw a very funny interview with Barack Obama and um, Stephen Colbert, where it was like this like mock job interview. And Stephen Colbert was interviewing Obama uh, and saying like, well, so I see you had no uh, job promotions or progressions in eight years. Um, <laughs> that doesn't seem so good, Mr. Uh, Obama. And he was like, well, there kind of wasn't a lot of, you know, a lot of places to go for a lot of outward there's mobility. Was, there's not a lot of upward mobility. I thought that was hysterical. But for me, like if I were like a kid and I was like, I'll be in the White House, that's like the pinnacle. But mm-hmm. it turns out that when I got there, what I thought was the ceiling was actually my new floor. So I'm working in the White House and I'm helping create this incredibly bipartisan program, AmeriCorps. But also, who's helping us make decisions about how that's being run 
governors and senators and lobbying groups and, you know, these national nonprofits that actually uh, engage volunteers. So there's all these other people that are making change in different ways that together create the fabric of the bigger thing that we might accomplish. So even though I thought I had hit the pinnacle, I was really just on the ground floor of what the next thing would be. And I think that's what happens, especially when we achieve our dream job early, because we're like, well, this is amazing. Now what? What's Mm -hmm. left? I kind of got everything I wanted, but also maybe I want different things. And then, you know, there's that moment, Lauren, I don't know if you experienced this, but like, it's not like you can complain. So, you know, for like a lot of entrepreneurs, people are like, I don't understand. Like you have your own business, you're doing fine. Things are great. Like, what are you complaining about? You're busy, you're stressed. Boy, I wish I could have that busy and stressed. <laughs> that, that moment of wonder hell where it, it's exciting, but it's also really hard. There's not a, like, we're often very lonely in those moments. I know exactly what you talk about and I can still picture it, which means I need to put it on stage. I need to tell the story more. Because I can literally still feel like I'm sitting behind that first desk in this small pit of like, you know, my desk shoved into corners as our digital team was growing and just the feeling of counting towards, well, in three years, you get vested this way. In five years, you get vested this way. I've been here 12 months. Like there's no, there's no effing way I'm getting there. Like, right. So that means I got to figure out like, how to make it good today and what I'm working towards tomorrow. But it was honestly not until I left that position that I actually could see what was really next. I had to forcibly leave. We, we took, my husband took a different job and so we moved away and I couldn't physically work for the PGA Tour anymore. And then, then I really had to say like, okay, what's around me? What have I accomplished? What, what do I want to do next um, to do that? And it feels like, and I've talked about this on this podcast a little bit, Every seven years or so, I kind of go through that shift. I don't know if like, maybe I should be asking you, is seven years like the right amount of time? But I did seven years at the tour. I did seven years with Convince and Convert under the guise of Jay Bear, um, under his wings and mentorship and the team there where I got to learn marketing. And, and now, now I'm on this other one, right? Like there's a startup. You and I were talking before we started recording. I saw something, I saw a problem and then I saw the solution and I cannot unsee that piece of it. So now I can see myself as a founder, building a company, putting into place the things that I want, that I think are important for business, for employee experience and all of those things. Yet here I find myself complaining to you uh, again, before we started recording about like, I'm, I'm a little bit stuck. Uh, In your head, you're hearing all the things that are going to go wrong or all the reasons you shouldn't do it, right? What's happening in the market? Do I have enough time? Do I have enough knowledge? Do I have enough money? Um, What am I going to do with my family? How am I going to balance all the requirements of my life and my house and like all these things? And those are the moments where, you know, we hear those voices and those voices sound like limitations. But really what's happening is in your mind, you want them because it's not just that you saw a need and you saw a company that could exist. My guess is that you also saw yourself running that company. You've probably imagined yourself walking into a VC firm and presenting it. You've probably imagined yourself talking um, in the media about this need and what it is that the company can do. You've probably imagined, I'm guessing, what the website even looks like, right? So you've already imagined yourself like in the bullpen, helping to run this and thinking about it and solving customer issues. 
once you've seen yourself, like it's not just that you can't unsee the company you want to build. You can't unsee yourself as the person doing it. And um, throughout Wonder How I interview, you know, a hundred different glass ceiling shatters, Olympic uh, medalists, uh, startup unicorns. And one of the people I interviewed was Sally, Sally Krawcheck. And Sally Krawcheck um, is the founder of Elevest, which is like mm-hmm. a women's investment platform by women for women. They have $2 billion, with a B, $2 billion under management. Now, Sally is the only person on the planet who has been fired, not just once, but twice on the cover of the Wall Street Journal, which, you know, that's pretty impressive. But, you know, she ran, you know, part of Lehman Brothers. She ran Smith Barney. She's incredible. And the reason that she was fired, she says, is because she was a woman, not because she was of the female sex, but because she was a woman who was thinking in terms of nuance and long-term risk and how do these investments affect our customers in ways that the men in the boardroom were thinking about like return and how do we make the most money? And so she just had a different way of thinking. And because she had a different way of thinking, it wasn't something that they wanted because it was slowing them down. They would have to like stop and think and agitate and have a conversation. And so she said one day when she was putting on her mascara, she was thinking to herself, you know, the savings crisis, the retirement savings crisis is really a woman's crisis. Huh. Women live longer. We earn less. We don't have as much savings. We're told by the investment industry, don't buy the avocado toast. Whereas like the men, it's like, yeah, buy the Porsche power, right? So like women get different messages. And she was like, I was sitting there putting on my mascara and I'm like, somebody needs to fix this. Who could it be? It's got to be somebody who knows Wall Street. It's got to be somebody who can withstand you know, the difficulty of public embarrassment if things don't go well. It's got to be somebody who's been, you know, through the ringer and who's tough and who understands it. And she was like, that's me. Mm-hmm. There's literally one person on the planet and it's me. And once she realized that, she couldn't not build it. Yeah. And I think you're kind of in that same place where you're like, I know it needs to be there. And it's exciting and it's interesting and it's juicy and it's meaty. And if you don't build it, you're always going to want to have had built it. You're listening to Brand to Fan with Lauren Teague. More after this. Getting video from your phone into socials just isn't as easy as we'd like it to be. That's why I've started to use Pictory.ai. It's a powerful AI technology that allows you to create and edit and brand and share incredible videos that start either with the text of a copy that you have or video from your phone or out of Zoom. I use Pictory.ai to create all of the shareable social media videos for the Brand Fan Show. I totally recommend that you try it out. And I've got a special link for you to do so. Go to lauren.click slash make a video and create your first shareable video on Pictory.ai. That link is lauren.click slash make a video. Now back to Brand to Fan. Here's Lauren Teague. It would slay me to see somebody else do it in yeah. a way. And, and certain people are uh, certain like there are bandwagon is not the only e-commerce marketplace, even in the sports industry. But none of them are the way that I would do it, you know, and so it, it, w- it would slay me if something got really close and I did give myself the chance to do it. Yes. What's interesting is I remember people close to me, like even my own mother, I think she's has great ideas and no follow through. Love you, mom. So I remember, I, I remember listening to her growing up and like, oh, what this st- small town of 5,000 people needs, somebody's going to put a gym in here and it would, and it would do so well. And da, 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 da. And man, if I, you know, if I could do a business, like that's what I would do. Well, she never did it. Of course she didn't do it. 
And of course there was a gym and of course it's successful. And now there's two or three in the town, right? So like, and so I think actually being able to kind of observe that from the sidelines and then to say like, oh, but I, the difference is that I am willing to take that risk. I am willing to at least like see myself in that position where I think that's not something that everybody wants to do. Yeah, and everybody has different economics of reality. Everyone has a different safety net. Everyone has different inputs in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of their, the people closest to them and their comfort with risk, right? So like everybody's a little bit different. And I think there is a moment in Wonder Hell where we actually have to stop and say, okay, there are people who are whispering in my ear, don't do it. You shouldn't do it. This is too scary. This is really dangerous. And there's a moment where we have to think, are those people, A, people of my best interest at heart, right? Because like some of those people are just jealous and they see your rise and only can see their own stagnation. Some of them do have your their, your best interest at heart, but they don't know you, right? Like I talk about my parents. I'm like, the last time I lived in the same house as my parents, I was 17 years old. And mm-hmm. I used to bring, you know, the car back uh, on empty, but like the radio was up on full, right? So my parents would get in the next morning. I was like, well, and you know, they, they couldn't, they couldn't, uh, uh, drive to work. I didn't have a frontal lobe. Like I didn't know how to make good decisions. So when I tell my parents, like I'm dropping out of law school or I'm leaving the White House or I'm selling my firm, they're like, what are you doing? Like, well, do you sure you want to do that? Have you thought that through? And then there's other people who are in your life who um, they're just scared. Like they themselves are scared. Maybe they never were able to follow through and they're like, oh, don't do that. That's scary. But what they really mean is like, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm too scared. scared. Right. So who are the people who we have closest to you and 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 are they the right people? Like, I like to make sure that I have people in my life who don't let get, don't let me settle for mediocrity. I want to make sure I have people in my life who like if they don't hear from me in a month about something about FanWagon, they're going to be like, hey, what's going on with your startup? Right. Mm-hmm. Like what's happening? Give me an update. Like they are the ones who keep pushing you and reminding you. And they remind you not just of who you are, but I think that there are a lot of people in our lives who see us as what we can be. Like, it's hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame, right? <laughs> so, you know, like there's, there's this great study that people who say I smoke are more likely to quit smoking than people who say I am a smoker. Because oh. I am a smoker is like, that's your identity. Mm-hmm. I am a smoker. It's who I am. It's hard to change identity. I smoke means like it's something that's a habit, something I do now, but I can change it. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you show up late for a meeting, the people who are in that meeting don't see you as, oh, that's Lauren. She's always late, always letting us down, never organized. They're just like, oh, she was late today. Right. She was late this one time. So they see you as a, you know, as the sum of all the things you are rather than just who you are in that moment. And I think it's important to keep more of those people around us. Yeah, actually, it. You're alluding to one of my favorite chapters in the whole book of Wonder How, um, which is the tunnel of love. Yes. And we're going to explain like how you how you built the book uh, and laid it out in a little bit. But that was probably like the most highlighted chapter on my Kindle. I was pre-reading for you know this interview and and also you were uh, gracious enough to to give me a, some advanced reading um, before. And and that is actually something I sat with with a, a lot was like who are the best people. If you've got a really large network, I'm blessed to have a, a brilliant network of people like you and like Jay Bear and these incredible people. And that's just like on the speaking side. I, I kind of have that modeled in sports and I have that modeled in my community. Like I, that is one of my 
like biggest assets. So when I'm thinking about who I seek as a champion, you know, is it has to be, it feels like it has to be a balance of like people who know me the best because I need those people in my corner, but also the people who I'm actually admire like you at an arm's length where I can like, you know, I haven't, we haven't had a chance to catch up in, in quite some time. We're Instagram friends, you know, yeah. you know what I'm doing. I kind of know what you're doing. And, and we went to that one conference together a million years ago. <laughs> and, you know, and, and so that's kind of there. So do you have to have kind of a mix of those people who, who are the ones that are more likely to push you along? So I think I like to think of it all at all times. I like to have three different types of people. I like to have aspirationals, right? Like the people who I'm like, they're amazing. They're further along down the path. I want to be like them when I grow up, right? Like our friF Carrie Lorenz. Amazing, yeah. right? First yeah, female F-14 fighter pilot in the U.S. Navy. I'm never going to do that. But she also has written a couple of great books. She speaks, you know, all over the world. She gets paid phenomenal fees. So I look at people like that and I'm like, okay, cool, right? Carrie's the one who, if I'm ever, if I go silent for too long or if I like send her something, like I sent her a copy of my first book and she was like, when it like the penultimate draft. And she called me up and she was like, listen, can I swear? Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah. Okay. She goes, listen, Laura, she goes, your book is really fucking good and you're really fucking smart, but you're too fucking smart for your book just to be really fucking good. It needs to be really fucking great. Go make it really fucking great. And I was like, oh God, you're right. You're right. Like she didn't let me settle for mediocrity, right? It was like, it was a pretty amazing moment when like the first F-14 fighter pilot of the US Navy just kicks your ass all over the place. Mm -hmm. But not only that, she then spent 45 minutes on the phone with me when I was like, oh, you're right. I just, I gave up. I didn't know there's something I can't. She spent 45 minutes helping me figure out exactly what the thing was and then introduced me to her editor who helped me fix it and make it really fucking great, right? Like, you need that kind of person. Absolutely. Then I think you need peers who are sort of on the same path as you, around the same place as you. So you can compare notes. Frankly, you can complain with them. You can, you know, bitch and moan. You can celebrate together. But just someone else who's like, hey, I learned this thing. Maybe you should try it. Or they're like, hey, I learned this thing. Maybe you should try it. Like I have, you know, some of our friends like Clay Bear and David Burkus and Tasha Yurik. And whenever we figure something out, we just text the other one. It's like, oh, that's cool. Right. So we're kind of doing the work for each other. And then I think it's also really important to have mentees. Because I think that the best way, like we were talking about, you know, imposter syndrome before and feeling like, oh, am I good enough? Can I do it? I think the best way to know, to remind ourselves that we actually do know some shit, like we've done some shit, like it's pretty great, is to mentor someone from time to time because they're like, oh, cool. That makes sense. And you're like, yes, I do know something. <laughs> day where I got smacked all over the place by my own incompetence, and but I do know something. So I think it just helps to, 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 to do that. And so I think, you know, I think it's important to have the right people around you, but I also think it's important to get rid of the people who aren't serving us any longer. Yeah. yeah. And that's tough, right? That's, that that's is really hard. Because some of those people are the ones who are like closest to us. They're our family. They're our friends. They've been in our lives for years. It's tough. Yeah, it's really, really hard. And it's something that, you know, again, going through the entrepreneurial journey of like, who who shows up for you, who doesn't, you know, even if it's online, like you can start to see that and, and who you, who you invest your time with, like you have to be more choosy yes. with that. And so that's, that's definitely something that I'm, that I'm seeing as well. But I love that, that the, uh, the three people to have in your corner, I'm going to circle back at that at the end. One thing that I loved about Wonder How 
was how you laid it out. And I know this is kind of like a COVID project for you or, a, you know, it took a couple of years to write. So I'm, I know that you have fun. I love to look with into like the small things that make the differences between like, oh, a good book and a great book, right? And I actually think some of the choices you made in how the book is laid out. So you describe Wonder How as has this like amusement park almost that you that you don't that you want to visit, but you're not really sure if like by the end of the day that was a good idea. And the whole book then is organized like an amusement park. You've got these three key areas. I know you're going to talk about them, but they're in Poster Town, Deltsville, and Burnout City. I'm kind of curious, based on who you've talked to and the feedback that you've gotten so far, where do you think most people are going to open the book and visit? based on your knowledge of how entrepreneurs and high performers are feeling today? Well, you know, I, I have been, I've sent the book out for people to read it early and I have been amazed at how many people really do just start with Imposter Town, both women and men. Like I thought the women would start with, with Imposter Town and they'd read Doubtsville and the men would go right to Burnout City. But it turns out that all of us at every age and at every stage, like we all have exactly the same issues. It's just some of us talk about them more and some of us aren't supposed to talk about them and my gender sort of socialized in ways. Um, so I think that um, my guess is that people will, you know, start in the beginning, they'll they'll sort of work their way uh, through the beginning of Imposter Town and then they're going to be like, you know what, let me go back to the table of contents and look at this list of rides. So as you said, it's organized. Um, it's organized like an amusement park where like you think like it's going to be really fun. I'm going to go to an amusement park. And then like at three o'clock in the afternoon, you're like, I don't feel so good. And I'm sunburned and this corn dog isn't so happy in my stomach. We think success is going to be like that. And then you're like, I thought this was going to be fun. Why isn't this fun? So the book organized um, as Imposter Town, Doubtsville, Burnout City, um, each one of those towns has five rides and the five rides represent the tsunami of emotions that come at us. Every time we achieve something and then we're like, wait, there's more. And so I think people will go back and they'll be like, huh, make your own luck or figure out who I am or letting go of my demons, focusing on what matters, quieting perfectionist tendencies, you know, the, the, the um, uh, saying no to hustle porn. Like, I think people will probably go a little bit into it and then think, which one works for me? And so the book is really sort of organized that people can read it from cover to cover mm -hmm. or they can go wherever they need at the moment, depending on what's happening to them right now. My argument is that everyone's going to have all 15 of these emotions at different times. It's just a matter of where they're, where they are at this exact moment. You're listening to Brand to Fan with Lauren Teague. More after this. As you're out in the world listening to the Brand to Fan show, look up and start to count the number of team hats, t-shirts, pullovers, and jerseys you see once you start to see them, sports logos and team colors are seemingly everywhere. Well, this is exactly why I decided to build FanWagon, the web's re-commerce marketplace for buying, discovering, and reselling your sports fanware, be it vintage or just last season's jersey. FanWagon aims to serve both buyers and sellers at the intersection of sustainability and fandom and create a personalized and easy experience for second fan fashion. I'd love for you to go check it out today at fanwagn.com. That's fanwagon.com. I'll see you there. Now back to brand to fan. Here's Lauren Teague. 
Yeah. And I certainly felt that way when I was going through that. Some things I was like, oh, I'll come back to that. Like, is that the thing that I want to read right now? No, but I know where it is. Like I've marked it and, and that kind of thing. So I think that is really, it's unique and it not only gives us something to talk about, obviously, but I think it's one of those ways that when you're designing collateral or an experience or like you're writing that book. So like to, to make the, the bold choice to do it a little bit different than a yeah. front to in back read makes, you know, it not only is going to get people telling stories about where they found themselves in Wonder Hill this week, but to make the recommendation of like, you have to read this one chapter. I'm giving you this book because of this one chapter that I read just because I flipped it open, right? Like that and is I, really, really cool. You know, I think that that's, it's, it's like, it's a riskier choice, right? But for the people for whom it resonates, it will resonate super hard. And, um, you know, my, my, my hope is that people will read it. They will recognize the sort of overarching experience of being in Wonder Hell. And then it's really a question of like, okay, what is the solution they need right now? This particular solution right now. I, I like I said, I think it's a really cool way. And in, in the way that you said that, like, it's a bold choice, but the best brands, the best authors, the best speakers, they're making bold choices because that's actually what attracts and not just attracts, but keeps people with them. Yes. And, and so I want to write the same book. Like I wrote an, I wrote a book that was a cover to cover book. Like I didn't want, you know, I wrote one that was the like, here's the problem, like, here's the shared goal. Here's the problem. You know, the Tamsin Webster red thread, you know, thing that goes through. And I just didn't want to do that again. Yeah, I did it once. It worked. It made a lot of sense, but I've sort of, I found that ceiling. I was looking for the next floor. Yeah. Well, when entrepreneurs are also looking kind of for the next floor, they're usually building towards something that they feel is either life-changing for for the people that they're serving or world-changing at some scale, even if it's just like my individual life, my individual world. And as we've discussed, like it's definitely true that some form at some place along that journey, they're going to experience this wonder hell dichotomy. But I'm I'm curious about the business. Does the success or the potential success of a business also create like a wonder house scenario? And if so, how do the leaders or their advisors really like identify and tackle that part of it? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that's such a good question. And the best story I can tell is when I was running my search firm, we had uh, we had 30 staff and we everybody was we were we were remote before it was COVID cool. Right. So like we brought everybody in for a retreat and we hired a, a, a very well-renowned business thinker from Harvard to come in and facilitate our retreat. And the first thing she did was have us all go around the table and pick a number that we thought was the ideal number of people of employees that would work at our search firm. And people were like 50, 112, six. 30, like people were just naming numbers. And she got to me at the end and I was like, I think that that's a really dumb question. Which by the way, if you ever say to like a Harvard tenured business thinker, they don't really like so much. Uh, I was like, I think it's a really dumb question. Tell me what we're trying to do. And then I'll tell you what number we should have. Are we trying to maximize impact in the world? Are we trying to maximize freedom and flexibility for ourselves? Are we trying to maximize profit? What kind of company are we trying to build? What are we trying to accomplish? And then once you tell me that, then I'll tell you what the right number is. And I think the problem is, is that with a lot of companies and especially entrepreneurs, we think bigger, better, faster, more is the only definition of success. So you have 10 people, you should get to 20. You have 20, you should get to 30. You have 30, you should get to 300. So when you're in this moment of, I was, I'm able to do this at 30, 
I should scale. We have to stop and ask ourselves, is that really what I want, right? Is that what success is going to look like? Maybe this is the time to get on the merry-go-round and just sort of stay where we are and sort of entrench and do really well. Maybe this is the time to make sure that we're ready for when the bumper cars come and we get knocked off course. Maybe there are other things that we should be doing that make more sense. But rather than getting trapped in this, I see this version of myself that I can't unsee, stopping to ask as a business, why do we want to do that? And what does that get us? And are all of our people on board with that? I talk about the loop-de-loop at the end, the last ride of the book, where I talk about Whitney Johnson's S-curve, right? And so there's this moment where we've decided that we're at the top of our curve and we want to leap to the next one, but we can't just leap by ourselves. We have to pack everybody else's backpack and take them with us. So is everybody in the company on board with the next wonder hell also? So these are the things I think leaders really have to be thinking about. Okay, you're right in that, you know, we have to be thinking about it. We have to be thinking about the whole team and and ultimately what's the end game. I wonder if that's, you know, going back to, you know, the founder of Elvest and, and thinking through, you know, if I approach this as a woman, what's my different perspective? For me, it's the same thing. You know, we bring a different perspective. We're looking at different factoring in different things. And it's actually one of the reasons why I couldn't talk myself out of becoming an entrepreneur and founding a new company was because I, hey, there's a few things in business that I think should look different. And so now that I can't unsee myself doing that for other people, then that's that's what I'm going to have to go do. So. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I talk in my, in my, in the, the TEDx that, um, in 20 years of executive search, I can tell you that the internal candidates always left when they didn't get the job. Mm-hmm. And it's not because they were treated poorly or they felt like they were taken advantage of. I mean, obviously that happens a lot with a lot of people. But um, in the searches that I did for these sort of C-suite positions, they left because the very process of interviewing for the job meant that they had to wear the clothes of the role. They had to talk in the voice of that role. They had to solve problems in the mindset of that role. And once they saw themselves in that role, they couldn't unsee it. And so I think, you know, the thing about Wonder Hell is it's a sneaky bastard. Like you don't have to be in Wonder Hell to feel the burden of your potential. You just have to imagine it on the other side of the river. And even as soon as you've imagined it, boom, Wonder Hell has got you. But here's the other thing about Wonder Hell. It only shows itself to people who are worthy of it. So if you weren't somebody who could accomplish that thing, you never would even imagine yourself as that thing. Oh, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. And there's there's a motivational quote for the poster. (laughs) There you go. Thank you. I love it. And then I realized adventures, best way to learn. Welcome to Wonder Hell. Thank (laughs) you. So I'm, like I said before, I'm I'm definitely in it. I can definitely feel it again. And and it's not, it's not uncomfortable because it's not unfamiliar, but it's just, you know, also trying to figure out how to, uh, how to work my way into the next tomorrow. Uh, Laura, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. I'm Brenda Fan. Before I let you go, I'm going to ask you two questions that everybody on the show answers. Um, the first is product, service, person, team. What are you a fan of right now? I've been wearing this Whoop for like three and a half years, and I am I am such a fan. The book is coming out in a month, and so I'm like trying to get media ready. So I'm like, all right looking at my whoop, I'm making, locking in my recovery. Like it's just, it's just, it helps me with my, all my good habits. So I'm a very big fan of, I'm living by my whoop right now. I love that. Um, and you live in the Boston area. And so there's no shortage of professional and collegiate programs, teams and things in, uh, that 
that you could be a fan of. So what is your favorite jersey or piece of fan wear that's either in your closet today or you used to have it into it like tattered to shreds? <laughs> oh, gosh, I have a Red Sox baseball cap from 1986. So I grew up in Miami, but I'm like, I have been a fan of the Red Sox since 1986. I only moved to Boston in 1993, but there was a boy in my uh, 10th grade class. His name was Adam, who was a big Red Sox fan. And I was a big fan of Adam. I had a huge crush on him and he was a fan of the Red Sox. And when the Red Sox played the Yankees, I watched every game in the World Series. And so not only do I have a from 1986, I have the original like Boston Red Sox broken heart. So I feel like I'm a true fan. Yeah, that's my favorite. That's that's pretty remarkable. My favorite reason for asking these questions is the stories. It's not the item, it's the story. And there's always like that very tangible thing. It's a great and great question. The stories that we get to unpack just with that question and that we get to unpack with Fanway and with people buying and selling out of their own closets and trying to find the thing that matches the thing that they had or the next thing that they can pass down. Um, is just like one of those reasons why I love asking that of all of our guests. So oh, I love it. It's such a great question. It's a good ask. I'm mm-hmm. going to steal that question for cocktail parties. I think that's a really good, that's a really good like icebreaker because then people immediately tell you about something that's just one of their most meaningful memories of their lives. Awesome. Well, Laura, today on the Brain of Fan Show, we had a chance to talk about your career, a little bit of my career and your journey in writing Wonder Hell, your brand new book. I love that you talked about how you always carried with you this entrepreneurial spirit from dream job to dream job because you understand, as I do, there's always kind of, you can see the better way. And then if you're not part of the solution, then you're actually part of the problem. And we also talked a lot about how anyone, once they imagine success or their role in that, and that you, they can't actually unsee that, even if they haven't taken steps to do that. But I love how you reminded us that there is a space for anybody between yesterday and today, even if that is what you've named Wonder Hell. When we talked about who's behind you and and who are your fans that will push you through some of these places, you mentioned that there are three people that are good to have in your corner, that those people are aspirational leaders or people that you aspire to kind of be a little bit further down the same journey as you. Um, also your peers who you can, you know, coalesce with and and cry on each other's shoulders and cheer each other on, as well as mentees, which I think is so important is being able to kind of pass that information and pass that knowledge on helps kind of prop you up as well. But you also reminded us to not forget to tune out or remove voices that aren't serving you to get out of this place of wonder how or, or move forward. And the last note was that you mentioned imposter town is a universal place that we're all going to visit, no matter your age, your experience, your gender. But as someone who is a fan of yours, I'm just happy to tell everybody that Wonder Hell, your new book, is a worthwhile visit. And make sure everybody gets their copy, whether you order it from your local bookstore or Amazon, get it ASAP, because it is a really damn good read. And uh, for me, it came at exactly the right time. So I know that uh, that's not isolated for me. I know that that other people are going to find it, discover it, read it, uh, and rely on it as they're pushing through their own. How'd I do? You did amazing. You know, the funniest thing about Wonder Hell is that everyone's like, wow, I think I'm in Wonder Hell. And I'm like, okay, here's the joke. 
all of us are in Wonder Hill all the time. <laughs> it turns out we're all in Wonder Hell. So welcome to Wonder Hell. <laughs> Thank you. It's glad to be here. Is there anything else you want to add about the book or resources? No, or I think can follow great. you. Um, so yes, yeah, so my name's Laura Gassner Odding. All my friends, like you call me LGO. So I'm on all the socials at hey LGO, H E Y L G O. Um, if you want to see a 12 minute overview of the book, uh, the TED Talk is on TED.com and you can just search for me. It's about to hit a million views, which is absolutely insane. Um, you can pre-order the book on Amazon or your local bookstore, or if you go to wonderhell.com, you can buy it there. We're giving all sorts of pre-order bonuses and we're actually going to um, distribute all the orders that come in and pre-orders through local bookshops. So you That's can take amazing. care of wonderhell.com. Awesome. Well, she is LGO or Laura Gassner Audien, and I am Lauren Teague, the host of the Brand to Fan show, where we unpack the phenomenon of fandom to future-proof your business and the brands that you're building. If you like what you're hearing, please share it with someone else. Subscribe, rate, and review the show. And we'll put the links to buy Laura's book in the show notes for this and every episode on brandtofan.show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of the Brand to Fan Show. I'm your host, Lauren Teague, marketing speaker, strategist, and the founder of FanWagon. You know, it means a lot to me to spend this time with you. So if you like what you're hearing, I'd love if you could drop me a note at brandtofan at teaguefc.com or message me on Instagram where I'm also teaguefc. If these brand to fan conversations resonate with you and you'd like to share this message with your audience, go to laurenteague.com to find out how I guide businesses and associations to stop chasing shiny objects and instead build for lasting affinity. The Brand Fan Show is produced by Teague FC and supported by FanWagon. Audio production is done by Brian Griggs and video editing done by Garrett Teague. Our producers are Kimberly Voorhees, Ashley Ruiz, and Carrie Hellbush. You can catch up on past episodes and guests and access bonus content by visiting brandtofan.show. Mm-hmm.